The Bridge by Jared Morris and Brian Clymer. Episode 2. The drive was a familiar one, but the repetition could be tedious. She'd get the entire trip done in a weekend. The truth is, sometimes she dreaded going. She'd feel sick. Sure that she was too sick to go by midweek. By Friday, it was full-fledged anxiety attack. She never talked to anyone about it because she didn't want to seem ungrateful. She'd just remind herself, Sarah, you've done this every few months for the past few years. It's going to be okay. She gave herself what she'd call treats to make the weekend less of a drag. She'd make a point to stop at Taco John's and Deadwood as there weren't many stops along the way. and She rarely ate fast food, but it gave her something to look forward to during the week. She was also an avid sky watcher. The skies above the Old West were amazing. She thought it was the closest humans would get to see God. Underneath the tapestry of stars, far away from the light pollution from the nearest Walmart, you could see for eons. Everything felt so huge, but so small, like it was painted on scenery of a Hollywood set. She also looked forward to the time alone because, quote, people were exhausting, she thought. Sarah's mother, who she only really spoke to through Facebook these days, always had encouragement to lend. Catherine Adams was a semi-retired psychologist living alone in her Oil City home. She lived in a large Victorian house built in the 1800s. The city was founded in the 1860s and served as a staging area for the rest of the oil region. There are few period homes in Oil City, though there are many homes in foreclosure and for sale for less than $30,000. There weren't a lot of jobs, so Oil City is a place where you either lived for life or a place you've never heard of. It was always Sarah's dream to live in an old home. The price was right, and she made more than enough money during her career that she didn't have to worry about finding work. She still served some patients, however. Those were all done via video chat or online meetings. Catherine was one of the early adopters of what John Kabat-Zinn dubbed mindfulness in the late 1970s. It was certainly not a novel concept. Kabat-Zinn helped legitimize the practice in medical and behavioral science. The concepts heavily borrowed from Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism, adapted yoga for our Western audience. Mindfulness is basically the practices of Eastern religions minus the religion. Followers still did breathing exercises, had mantras, meditated and stretched their bodies. However, any measure of a god, Krishna, or a universal hand were conspicuous in their absence. Catherine Adams often told Sarah that she needed to be more mindful. Sarah hated it. It's just yoga, Mom, she'd say. It's not, her mother calmly responded. It's a way of life. To Sarah, that sounded cultish. You just need to visualize where you want to be, dear. Just form a picture in your mind and meditate on it, Catherine said. She told her mom, I can't meditate. I never could. I don't understand it. Now nonsense, Catherine responded. Everyone can meditate. You just need to get over yourself. However, Sarah wasn't able to meditate, and Sarah wasn't able to visualize her success. Sarah was one of the 1-3% to of the population that suffers from aphantasia. Aphantasia is a condition where people are unable to visualize mental images. Sarah didn't know that she was any different than most people until she took a photography course at the community college. The instructor told them to picture their subjects in their mind's eyes. 
Fellow students would describe what they saw. I see a red apple. It's crisp and there's water droplets on the side. I can see brown dots on the skin. Now, the snozberries taste like snozberries, Sarah thought. She assumed that people were just exaggerating, that it was mass hysteria. But when it came time for her to explain her mental image, she couldn't. I don't know, she said. It's foggy. I mean, it's seriously foggy. I can see an image dark and gray for about one second before it disappears, and I just see gray. She used to tell her mom that she felt like she had a mental block. It was like a wall built around her memories, she'd say. Sarah went on to learn... Spurred on by the photography class experience that some people with aphantasia can't recall sounds, smells, or sensations of touch. In most extreme cases, some suffer from a condition where they can't even recognize people's faces. There are certain degrees of aphantasia. Some people see nothing but a blank slate. Some, like Sarah, can see a little. Still others can see about 70% of what non-sufferers see. It's still considered a new field of study. First described in 1880, around the time Catherine's home was being built, uh, by English polymath Sir Francis Galton. Now, there wasn't much interest in the study of an affliction that would later be named for the Greek without imagination. In 2015, Professor Adam Zeman of the University of Exeter, along with Michael Dewar and Sergio de la Sala, they coined the term aphantasia in their paper, Lives Without Imagery. Congenital Aphantasia, published in the journal Cortex. Using a questionnaire developed by D.F. Marks in 1973, visual imagery differences in the recall of pictures for the British Journal of Psychology, Zeman and his team attempted to assess the scope of the condition. They found that patients became aware of the condition typically in their late teens and 20s. Most were male. In that, Sarah was relatively unusual. They tended to come to the realization that the brains were different when hearing peers speak about seeing things in their mind's eye. About half said all modalities of imagery were affected. The thing was, it wasn't as if she wasn't creative. I mean, she often daydream and she would disappear in her own world. She was almost obsessive in her interests. But aphantasia doesn't quite equate to no imagination like the name would suggest. Scientists, authors, and scholars have all been identified as having the affliction. The most famous aphantasiac was the 2019 ACM Turing Award-winning computer scientist Edward Catmull. Catmull, perhaps best known as the co-founder of Pixar, the computer science firm turned animation studio that pioneered the field of computer animation. He also served as the head of Walt Disney Animation Studios after then-president John Lasseter stepped aside after what he called missteps in his behavior towards employees. Even after Sarah explained affidavit to her mother, Catherine would still encourage Sarah to manifest her success. It's mind over matter, honey, Catherine said. If you can see it, you can be it. People are exhausting, Sarah thought. It sounded so patronizing. In a lot of ways, though, it was simpler. On her first visit to a reservation, Sarah learned just how closed a community a reservation could be. She was visiting the Apache Indian Reservation in Rio Arriba County, New Mexico, on a medical field trip while still competing her studies. She and her colleague, Jeff Turner, stopped at the first convenience store they happened upon. It had been a long time since the rest area, and they always had said to drink a lot of fluids in the desert. The Rio Travel Center of Los Ojos was a two-pump gas station with a cash-only convenience store and a small restaurant attached. 
Sarah remembered the restaurant for their selection of buffalo tacos, among other more familiar fare. She blamed her schedule, but she wasn't quite brave enough to dine in. Sarah and Jeff each grabbed a handful of snacks and sodas. The woman behind the counter sat in a wicker chair with a blanket over her legs. She she asked Sarah and Jeff to put their items on the counter. Six dollars, she said. She didn't get up. Sarah pulled out a folded $10 bill and placed it on the counter. Christopher, the impossibly old woman barked. A little boy no older than 10 emerged from the back room. He was holding a portable and outdated Nintendo Game Boy in very sticky-looking hands. The woman held up four craggled fingers, and Christopher nodded. He worked the cash register and handed Sarah a change. Thank you, Sarah said. Christopher looked at her blankly. He quickly retreated to the back room from whence he came. Where are you from, honey? The woman asked. Oh, we're on a medical field trip. We're delivering supplies to some of the area's residents for the Indian Health Service. The Indian Health Service is a government agency that provides health care to the 2.2 million members of the nation's tribal communities. The old woman shook her head. Where are you from? Oh, Sarah thought. I always say the wrong thing. I'm from Erie, and he's from Rochester. The woman scrunched her face. Where's that? Oh, Sarah thought. It's Pennsylvania. Where's that? The old woman asked. On the East Coast? Sarah responded. Oh, East Coast. Near New York City. Well, it's nearer to New York than Mexico, Sarah thought. Not too far, Sarah said. The old woman seemed to accept this. Have you ever been to New York City? Sarah asked. Honey, I've never been off the reservation, the old woman replied. Jeff interjected. Oh, why not? There's a whole world out there. The old woman was unfazed by his privilege. I don't drive, she said. She and Sarah ended up having a nice conversation as Jeff slunk back to the car. I'm going to go do the windows, he told Sarah. She found out that the woman had been married to a man named David who passed on, quote, probably about 15 years ago. He took care of the shop and he drove so she didn't feel she needed to learn. She had never even pumped her own gas. She liked it when David would do things for her. She thought that New York City had too many people and too many lights. You could never see the sky, Sarah said. The woman, Mary, told Sarah that she suffered from arthritis and made moving around difficult, but she had the kids to help and be around the shop. She still gets up every morning at 4 a.m. to bake bread and get the restaurant ready. To Sarah, the takeaway from the chance encounter was Mary never left the county because she didn't want to. It wasn't some deficiency that stopped her, like Jeff assumed. It was just lack of desire. There's too much to do around here, Mary said. I've lived a good life. I've been in love. I have my grandchildren, Christopher. I have my own business, she said. That's three more things than I have, Sarah thought. Growing impatient waiting, Jeff laid on the horn. Sarah and Mary shared a glance. He yours? Mary asked. I don't know, Sarah said. She didn't. He's not for you, Mary said, and gave Sarah a very stern look. As Sarah walked towards the rental, the black Mazda M3, she didn't realize that this was one of those moments that would go on to shape her entire life. She looked at Jeff. Not for you, she thought. 
Sarah went to work as a locum nurse with the Indian Health Service, specializing in immunizations and pathology collection. It gave her the ability to move and work in different areas. She told herself that it was because she wanted to help as many people as possible, but the truth was she was afraid of being in one place for too long. A locum position can range from days to months or even years. This type of work offers her security without the commitment. It allowed her to work and experience other cultures. Though Sarah liked the work, her mother thought it was time for her to grow up. This current assignment had Sarah visiting, delivering supplies to, and immunization for the Native American communities of the American Southwest and the American Ancient West. She found that for many of the people, she was the only medical professional that they'd regularly see, plus the pay was excellent. What it all boiled down to was that Sarah wanted to be needed, often feeling alienated and uncomfortable around people. It was a way for her to connect with people who really needed her help, but for a short term. She wasn't exactly ambitious. Her real drive came from an innate desire to do something that mattered. Sarah saw this as excessive pride. Even when she tried to be good, she was still ashamed. Native American communities are especially hard hit during medical crises. As a general rule, tribal communities suffer a lack of funding, supplies, doctors, nurses, and hospital beds. Many of these areas' medical facilities are largely outdated and in ill repair. Because of these shortages, during the 2020 worldwide coronavirus pandemic, Native Americans suffered disproportionately high infection rates. There weren't enough beds, there weren't enough ventilators, there weren't enough tests. When PPE was delivered, it was often expired, and many patients died waiting for test results. The Native communities heard their cries largely ignored by Congress. The New York Times reported that Native peoples were three times more likely to contract COVID-19 than non-Native peoples. The Indian Health Service reported that the Navajo Nation in Arizona had a positive infection rate of nearly 20% from March through July 2020. Compare that to the 0.01 to 0.05% in other parts of the country and world. Gillette, Wyoming. It was still black as pitch as Doogie shuffled around his one-story rental. It was built in the 1980s and was slowly disintegrating. Built with engineered wood panel siding and on a massive five-acre lot, it looked like a steel, but these kind of homes were built on the cheap and weren't expected to last more than 40 or 50 years. He lived alone, and he could have moved into a smaller place. Real estate was cheap enough uh, that he could save money by buying. However, he didn't live by a lot of rules, but his one tenant was nothing is permanent in radio. His last serious girlfriend, Sandy, told him that he used that as a mechanic to avoid commitment and intimacy. That that had to be, what, six years ago? Still, it was a rule he lived by. He wouldn't buy a home until he had a secure job, and running a radio cluster out of Gillette, Wyoming, wasn't that. There's a superstition among radio workers that says as soon as you sign the mortgage, you're fired. Since most jocks have worked at multiple stations in multiple parts of the country, it's only a semi-facetious cautionary tale told by mainly anecdotal but varied accounts. Doug had a morning ritual. He popped a 2X caffeine coffee pod into his Keurig and sat down at his computer desk. When he turned his TV on and loaded up the CNN app on his Kindle Fire Stick and began to scour the web for what's what. 
he spent about an hour at home show prepping and waking up. He liked to do some of his show prep at home because there was always some happy horse shit that he had to deal with once he got to the station, and he didn't want the distraction. Although, this morning he was distracted. First, he couldn't find his tie, and then he found his keys in the front door when he went to grab the paper. Yes, papers were old-fashioned, but it still made him feel more prepared having one with him in the morning since the station canceled their subscription after a row with a local reporter. As he absentmindedly rubbed his arm where he'd gotten a recent vaccination, he had to remember to take the vitamins that the doctor gave him. He found himself distracted by CNN's early start program. It was hosted by two ridiculously photogenic anchors, but it was the doctor that he was interested in hearing from. Dr. Timothy Musgraves, a Catholic bioethicist at the Pellegrino Center for Clinical Bioethics at Georgetown University Medical Center, was joined by Father Thomas Comiacapo, Togolese Diocesan Ethicist for Healthcare. CNN began airing clips from the latest protest in Raleigh. A woman with dark hair and a T-shirt with blurred text was pushing into a police barricade. They cut to an earlier tape, Johnny on the spot interview with the same woman. I'm here because the vaccine is the number of the beast. It's made with murdered babies. I trust God to keep me healthy, and if he doesn't, oh well. Father Comiacabo had his head in his hands. Allison Swan, the dark-haired, handsome, 40-something female anchor, asked Musgraves, the bioethicist, for comment. Thank you for having us, Musgrave said. There's a lot to unpack here, and I understand that we're short on time. Let me begin by addressing the woman's initial point. She said that the vaccine is the number of the beast. I would imagine that most people are aware, at least peripherally, what that means. If I may, he said as he opened a very tattered and very red leather-bound evidence Bible that had been sitting on his knees. What we're talking about is a perversion of Revelation 13. Let me see. Ah, yes. He caused us all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead, so that no one may buy or sell except he who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for... It is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, Allison, this is believed to happen as a mockery of the seal the Lord places on Christians' heads to claim ownership and conservatorship. Throughout history, this number has been used to demonize phenomena that people didn't fully understand, but most importantly, the mark of the beast, it's a choice. In order to take this mark, you'll be declaring that you're worshiping the Antichrist. You cannot take it accidentally, Musgrave said. So, let's check that one off the list. He said, As Christians, we have a fundamental obligation to do right by others. While it is true that aborted fetal cells were used in the creation of the vaccine, they are not actually in the vaccine. It's in the vat, but it's not going into your arm. Father Comiacopo chimed in. Of course this troubles us. But right now you have to think about who is piloting the boat when ethically irreproachable vaccines are not available. It is acceptable to receive vaccines that have used cell lines from aborted fetuses in their research 
process. Miss Swan, do you agree? Do you believe that God is in control or not? Allison opened her mouth slightly and gave her head a little shake. Musgraves continued. Catholics who refuse to use a vaccine on the basis that it's made from fetal cells have to realize that they have a responsibility first to protect others, and that's what this vaccine does. Allison said, well, doctor, that's pretty much the same statement that was issued by the Vatican at the beginning of the pandemic. Comiacopo agreed. He said, Catholics must do their utmost to avoid by other prophylactic means and appropriate behavior becoming vehicles for transmission of this infectious agent. Father Ocopo, if you will, you mentioned who is piloting the boat. Can you expand on that? Allison Swan asked. Yes, he said with his thick accent. Picture a great flood. Not the great flood, but a large flood. Big storm. A certain man is stuck on the roof and he's praying for God for help. First, a man in a bathtub is rowing by. He says to the man, come aboard, I'll save you. The man said, God will save me. A short time later, a man in a motorboat. Hey, buddy, he said, unless you plan on swimming for it, come with me. The man said, God will save me. Last comes the National Guard. They have a huge boat with many people being treated aboard. They drop a rope ladder. We're here to save you. Get in the boat. The man shakes his head. God will save me, he said. As the water level rises above his roof, the man wonders why God didn't answer his prayers. You understand this, Miss Swan? He asked. The vaccine is the boat. Doogie, who went by the name of DJ Doogie Baby on the air, hadn't been feeling in the best of health lately. A life living paycheck to paycheck meant a lot of fast food, a lot of running around, stress, very little good sleep. Living such a life can't be good for your general welfare, he thought. He was the morning show host on KDON, a small FM in Gillette, Wyoming. He did the same few things every morning when he got to the radio station. He turned off the alarm. He turned on the lights. He turned on the mic processor because it took a few minutes to warm up old tubes. Even if he wasn't using it to record spots, he'd leave it on for the next person. He turned on the Keurig and popped in one of the coffee pods that he'd brought from home. The office manager, Louise, kept the station pods locked in her desk and she didn't come in until 9. It was done directly to spite Doogie, he knew. But the more he complained, the more he got a reputation of being difficult. Then he checked the promo desk for any new CDs that may have come in. Most of the majors sent protected links to download sites, but some of the smaller labels and independent artists still sent CDs. He snagged a promo CD of the new Dos X and went back to the studio. He opened up his cloud drive on the prep computer and downloaded the script he wrote from home. Then he began loading elements that he'd prepared for the day into the Vox Pro. The Vox Pro, it's a real-time recorder editor that you can use to record segments and callers edit them on the fly and then replay them on the air if you're doing a contest a caller may call during a song you can tape their call have them say they're listening to the greatest station in the world you can edit it for time and play it as soon as the song ends when louise opened the office at nine the phone was already ringing before she could get to her desk she looked down at the answering machine and saw there were 18 new messages 
She answered the phone. Kadon, she said. The caller on the other end of the phone said, I don't know if anyone's reported this yet, but you guys have been playing the same song for three hours. She looked in the studio. A large glass window was directly to the right of the workstation. Doogie Baby was sitting at the on-air computer with a blank look on his face. The studio phone flashed brightly every few seconds. There was no ringer on the phone as to not disrupt the programming. Each phone had a bright LED that would flash to notify the jock that someone was calling. Louise opened the studio door despite the on-air light being engaged. What the hell are you doing? she asked. Doug turned and looked at her and gave her a start. Later, she remembered that he looked like a baby. She wasn't sure what made her think of that or what made him look like a baby, but he did. He looked like a baby. It's the new Dosex, Doug said. Right, I know, Louise said. I recognize it. But why have you been playing it all morning? Hardin, Montana. Sarah was surprised to receive a phone call this early. She was waking up at her Airbnb. The hospital would usually spring for a nice room at the lodge, but this small trailer was pretty much equidistant between both of her destinations. At first, the room seemed unfamiliar to her. She lay in bed. She could hear the disembodied echoes of voices somewhere in the house having a conversation in all but hushed tones. It reminded her when she'd stay at her grandmother's house when she was a kid. She always stayed in the bed as long as possible so as not to have to make an appearance in her pajamas, especially if strangers were around. There were mysterious visitors always calling on her grandmother. She'd lie in bed and hear the unmistakable laugh of her grandmother and then a rise in voices. Everyone was talking at once and they sat around the kitchen table having morning coffee. The smell of cinnamon from the monkey bread would eventually coax Sarah out of bed and into the waking world. She shook her head to push away the fawn, but still melancholy memory. It was a call from Anna Jablinski from the Crow Police Department. There'd been a discovery near Bighorn Canyon, and the police said that Papa Bear, Boo Boo Archer, would have to bump their meeting a few hours. This was honestly fine with Sarah. She could use the extra sleep. Anna also explained that they'll have their meeting at the After Bay Ranger Station near Bighorn rather than the decidedly more lush lunch date at Garrison Stoker. After lunch, they'd head over to the Pretty Eagle Academy to meet with the 30 or 40 crow that have been chosen for this experimental vaccination program. Oh, said Jubelinski, and pack a lunch. Great, thought Sarah. Lunch with Boo Boo was part of the trip that she'd been most looking forward to. She had a tight schedule and the vax needed to be kept cold. She didn't know what would be important enough to cause this delay. From the recovered personal diary of Dr. Luke Lowe. Yes, it was my idea to fuse tardigrade DNA with the new nanotech that we developed. Those microscopic water bears can live up to 10 years without nutrients or water and are almost impossible to kill. They could easily survive and even thrive in the human body. These little rat bastards were the toast of the scientific community. I take particular issue with the term water bear. From what level of hell are these things considered bears? They have six arms that end in grabbers that look like cat claws. 
They have a conjoined pair of back legs that are somewhere between a mermaid's fin and a fetus. Their mouths, if you can call them that, resemble that of a fluke worm. They have no eyes and they're fat little fucks. Water bear my white ass. If the nanotech mechanism inside the subject stopped working, for whatever reason, the tardigrade would act like a backup generator and continue generating the cells within the host. We never told the participants that they were agreeing to get the life extension booster, which was really the mutated colovirus vaccine. There was another benefit of using the tardigrade DNA. It made human subjects healthier and more resilient to sickness and injury. This was a result of a protective protein that was able to replicate within human cells. We learned from Project Biocus, from the Italian Space Agency, that these little peckerheads could even survive in space. Not just in a spacecraft. They could survive in the vacuum of space, in extreme sub-zero temperatures, solar winds, and without oxygen. They may be, given time, the dominant organism on the planet because they are so adaptive. They are the honor roll students in Darwin's evolution class. They enjoy life in moist habitats. However, when such a habitat isn't available, they essentially become dormant. They shut down all but the most vital biological processes and are able to survive until they can be rehydrated. This process is called anhydrobiosis. They can withstand freezing through a process called cryobiosis. Plus, they're already everywhere. They can be found in the mountains of Nepal and in your backyard. They're amazing creatures. Hansen had already been experimenting with collagen from the Turoptopsis dorni, the so-called immortal jellyfish, to battle prions in cases of bovine encephalitis. At Pryosin, we found that cells from these little shits were quite beneficial in other areas of the brain as well. In the wilds of the deep, the jelly is able to transform itself, devolve, into an earlier stage of development if it is injured or even starving. They transform back into a polyp. That polyp then produces medusae that are perfect genetic replications of the original injured adult. This process of near death and rebirth reminded me of the universe. The constant expanding and retracting on a cellular level. For the restorative treatment of cells derived from these jellyfish, combined with tardigrade suppressors, we began unlocking the secrets to longevity. Or so we thought. We shouldn't have been surprised at what happened next. The tardigrade is the most resilient and adaptive organism on the planet. Their main drive is to survive and outlive everything. A few months after the tardigrade portion started to override the tech portion, it didn't destroy the tech, but it made itself the dominant of the two. For lack of a better description, looking in a microscope, you would only see the tardigrade, but its insides were now nanotech, as opposed to organic. Oh! A lab tech remarked upon discovery. It's like a teeny tiny little cyborg. <sighs> like many emerging sciences, we didn't really understand what we were seeing. It takes a lot of trial and error, but we were itching for the FDA approval. After the colovirus pandemic, people wanted a catch-all. They wanted something to protect them from future events. They were sick of seeing their family members die. What we learned from Kala was that tardigrade cells combined with a recombinant, replication-incompetent adenovirus, type 26, expressing the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein was the key to unlocking the body's defense system. 
it worked like the coronavirus in reverse. I can't reveal too much, even here, because it's become so proprietary, but this combination wasn't just stopping an infection. It was slowing down cellular mitosis in the whole patient. Not only could the virus not duplicate, neither could cancer cells or any other number of bad actors. In some cases, we started to see damaged cells rebuild themselves. It was essentially like the body's systems were slowing down and rebooting, which resulted in an extended lifespan. This process worked beyond our wildest dreams. It was yet another happy accident that occurred throughout the testing and rollout, like the data path realignment. I should have been happy, but something churned in my gut. That's all we got for today, but I will tell you, thank you for listening, and I hope you guys stay tuned for the next episode. In the next episode, we're going to meet Danny Reyes, a young man from Tennessee who made some money in unconventional ways and is now trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life. For Brian, this is Jared. It's jaredmorris.com, Jared Morris Radio on Facebook, or at Jared Morris on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast and uh, share it if you like it. The book's coming out very soon, so hope you guys check it all out. It's called The Bridge, and it's available on 10X Records. Coming out, so we will be available. Until next time, I'll see you and see you. Good night, God bless, and good day, sir. I said good day, sir.